This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and look, joining me today is uh, uh, someone who I've, I heard before I read. Um, his name is Anders Furs. He is a co-host of the Cultural Capital podcast in Melbourne with a couple of other phenomenal people, Eloise Ross and Andy Hazel, both of whom you're going to hear on upcoming episodes of One Heat Minute. So I've completed the set, um, which is in very much in line with the professional obsession that I have with this show and with Michael Mann's professional obsessives. But Anders is also a writer. He's a really brilliant writer. He's um, uh, uh, delivered uh, film analyses for places like The Guardian, Mean Gen, Domain Review, Crikey, and a couple of other places, and really stood out with probably one of the one of the best pieces of writing about film criticism in sort of a modern context, um, using Australia as a case study around sort of the way that film criticism is often devalued in our culture because of things like you know your IMDb's and your Rotten Tomatoes, and who is actually being paid to be a full time critic, and when you Criticize the critics and the concept of film criticism and why it's important, um, I think is really one of the most amazing pieces to talk about, like what the actual value that this country prescribes on it from a media perspective. It was a brilliant, yeah, totally. brilliant piece. I love reading it. And there's some great publications out there such as uh, Vague Visages that often talk about why criticism um, to sort of champion it. And I think Anders's piece was really well received, not only in the community, but everyone who read it. And I've wanted to talk to him on the podcast since I read that. It's been a long time coming. Anders Furs, welcome to One Heat Minute. Thank you so much for having me, Blake. And yes, that is the eternal conundrum, particularly <laughs> in Australia, in our country. Uh, the question, who gets paid full-time to be a film critic? The answer is not that many people. Not. But there's still amazing work being done, which yes. is quite, I don't know, it's both... Um, like heartening and also disheartening because you think of all the amazing work that isn't being done, but it is quite <laughs> staggering, the community that exists yeah. despite these pressures. Yeah, and, and a whole bunch of people who are under this uh, epic freelance umbrella mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. who are sure. that, that, um, that, that guys that basically just learn how to pitch, how to write film criticism under a whole bunch of, like, new wave banners, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're all just doing film analysis and film criticism um, and, and, and discussion, but it's, a, it's you know, I think a lot of people just shy away to, like, a pure review or something like that. It has to have an angle. It has to have a little beat. Exactly. It has to... Exactly. This idea that, you know, we've now got to be making, you know, political points or talking about the way we live now, using films as our case studies, um, as opposed to, say, a more traditional or conventional approach to reviewing. Um, definitely a big shift. And it's a, it's also what I find interesting is the, um, you know, the economic forces that come to bear on criticism, uh, not just in terms of its precariousness, but who is funding it, and... Um, 
and what happens when you get you know studios funding uh you know think pieces in publications or stuff like that you know what uh, all these interesting forces that are at work um that make for a very messy interesting environment i think yes and it's in that very environment that something as mad as a 170-minute yeah, exactly. long project <laughs> dedicated to a film in LA in 1995 by a filmmaker named Michael Mann can come to fruition. An unpaid it, passion project, as exactly as it is. And and you're killing it, Blake. Oh, to what episode 81? This is 81. Yes. 81, yeah, yeah. Mate. I mean, that's amazing. Thank you. And there's still so many to go. <laughs> <laughs> and there's Anders' encouragement. You can hear it on, Cat- <laughs> on Cultural Capital Podcast and also on One Heat Minute. Yeah, look, uh, mate, it's so funny. It's like at the same time, um, I think stupidity really helps when you undertake yeah. something this big and um, totally. <laughs> and, and sort of just pure uh, naivete. And I think that's, you know, you see that manifest itself in a really cool way with like young filmmakers who go for crazy ambitious projects that eventually like mm. turn into masterpieces. You know, I'm thinking of um, like Fitzcarraldo, you know, Werner mm. Herzog, I'm thinking of Apocalypse Now, Francis Ford Coppola, um, you know, things that feel like they're going to fundamentally break down. Um, and it's often a young man's game. And I think that's what this pro- project is. It's just madness um, that somehow <laughs> has sort of uh, gained momentum. And um, I've turned myself into one of these, you know, professional folks you, doing this. Are you saying this is your Fitzcarraldo? This is... <laughs> Where's the meltdown? Like? <laughs> I'm waiting. I... I'm hoping that the meltdown doesn't exist. I'm hoping it turns in... Uh, there's, there is no behind... You know, my lovely wife is not playing Eleanor Coppola right, Coppola right now, like shooting behind the scenes footage of me just melting down shirtless, you know, crazy screaming... Good to know. But I, I think that's a, a really, like, important point um, that, you know, you can talk yourself out of anything. So the best – I mean, the best advice I ever heard was about, uh, you know, not even film criticism, just life in general is, like – uh, you know, just go ahead and do it and then, you know, think about it later. I mean, but for example, with our Cultural Capital podcast, for so Andy wanted to do that for so long and I kept on saying, oh, but, you know, what's our angle? What's our thing? What's our thing? And uh, one day he was just like, let's just start it and work it out as we go. And I think that's a very good advice for stuff like this. And I think what I think what what you said before about, um, and this is the thing that drives me nuts with like, what's your angle? Like the mm. whole, what's your angle? Mm. Films give you angles. You watch yeah, them. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, exactly. You, you know, what are you going to write about? Like, what, what's the angle? I don't know yet because I haven't seen the goddamn film. Like, the, <laughs> each film will come with its own angle. Like, it will, you know, I can I can tell you 10 angles it might have based on the trailer, but, it, yeah. like, but a film is a film. It's going to come with its own angles. Like, you know, there's some... You know, Toronto International Film Festival's on as we record this episode, and you, you know, yeah. you're reading takes from, from there, and, and and I often think like, yeah, like people are watching these films for the first time. They're you know talking about their cultural significance. They're talking about the performances. They're talking about whether they're relevant or not. And there's you know there's some amazing reviews coming out just with any film festival, and mm. and it's yeah it's sort of infuriating. But let's not get into infuriation <laughs> because right now. Um, um, uh, that, that's why I wanted to talk to Anders, but that's not what his insights are going to bring us in this minute. So right now we're at the 81st minute of Michael that's Mann's it. 1995 Crime Opus Heat on the theatrical cut. 
Um, um, this moment is an hour 20 on uh, on the code there um, if you're watching it. It's the Warner Brothers Blu-ray, not the new Fox Definitive Edition. It's probably a couple of seconds out on that one. You'll hear precisely where we're up to. Um, the previous minute ends so perfectly and precisely with um, uh, 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 Casals, um, which is played by Wes Studi, um, uh, talking about how it makes no sense that they're at that location that they are. So Neil and his crew have come out to this weird-looking abandoned shipyard place and started faking the fact that they're going to do a heist there and lured in Vincent Hanna and his crew so that they could be caught, so they could catch their people. And we're right in the middle of that sequence. Yeah. It's so awesome. And, and the revelation is at the end of our minute, pretty much. But we're going to watch it now. Um, Anders and I together, you guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and we're going to unpack the whole thing. It's too low ball for them. Next door is an oil refinery, over there is a scrapyard. Refinery only pays by check, no cash around. Same for the scrapyard. Maybe they're stealing hubcaps. A refinery in a scrapyard. What the hell is going on? Well, that's what we're trying to figure out. We thought we had it. Thought we had it. I got an idea of what they're looking at. You want to know what they're looking at? I mean, is this guy something or is he something? I mean, is this guy something, Anders, or is yes. he something? Is he something? And that is, I mean, I think that is the key to this minute. And, I mean, I would argue perhaps the movie itself. Um, <laughs> uh, of course I would, uh, in my minute. But um, it's just like, I mean, this is really the moment um, where... I don't know, that central relationship gets interesting, I guess, um, between Vince and Neil. Like, this is it. This is the, when he realises, oh, this guy is, like, onto us. And, you know, he too can play at this game kind of thing. And there have been sort of, I guess, hints um, at that before. And, you know, particularly that that moment where um, uh, where one of the LAPD, uh, like, he makes that noise while yeah, they're surveilling makes them. makes the noise when they're surveilling He's, them. Yeah, which sort of alerts them to the whole thing, really. But, I mean, that was sort of on them, whereas this is very much on, um, uh, on Neil and his guys. And so, yeah, it's such an interesting moment in the narrative, I think. Yeah, it's it's a oh, it's a phenomenal minute. And what's so good is, and and you would know this, you know, and this is where I like unpacking it critically is, in the there's a frantic subjectivity in the way that this scene is shot because yes. so much, and and this is where the camera's doing so much work is, you're looking at all these guys looking around trying to find the thing that jumps out at them, and yeah. I love that in a scene that's conveying frantically cutting you know you you're cutting between all the guys faces and no one looks certain and they're all getting more 
annoyed, frustrated. Like, you know, you get the different senses of personalities. Like, it's like, what the hell is going on? Like Bosco, you know, you know, probably got a better, you know, or a more enduring relationship, you know, Ted Levine's character with Al Pacino. So he's kind of like, well, that's what we're trying to figure out, mate. Like, you know, we're all yeah, standing, yeah. Around, yeah. We're all standing <laughs> around here at this freaking place looking at a shipyard and a, um, and an oil refinery. Like we're, we're trying to figure it out. And I just love how frantic it is. And when it, and when it catches, I'm just trying to sort of pinpoint, I'm going to mute it and sort of scroll through as we do often. It's, it's, it's like, I want to say, I'm just sort of watching it, you know, we're so close, we thought we had it. It's about 35 seconds. There's this beautiful yeah. profile shot of Pacino with the sun hitting his face and it's like mm. literally illumination. Like 35 seconds, he's like, mm. he looks over at the towers and then, and then there's focus. Previously, there's people looking around, things aren't matching, you know, someone's looking left and then something appears on the right and the cameras are doing all these weird, it's almost like it's, editorial trickery to teach you that they're not finding what they're actually looking for but here there's this great thing 35 seconds 39 seconds he looks over he's scanning around and and the movement of the camera emulates vincent's eyes and he goes 44 seconds is where he says the first line it's so i just love the i love the artfulness of you know flicking around with that right it's just like you know it's 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 tweaking with your brain it's doing all this subconscious stuff that's not really overt until you sort of start unpacking it yeah exactly exactly and it's um interesting you mentioned that because when i uh first was looking at the minute i was like okay what's where am i going to start here and then the basic thing i thought of well okay let's look at the shots and um you're right it's 20 i counted 24 shots yeah, yeah. um it's 24 in, shots in a 60 second uh bit of footage so almost that two a little bit over two seconds a shot yeah. um and um interestingly um uh, he pacino is the i can't know how many of them focus on pacino and it's 10 um, of him of the 24 but if you count those pov shots that you were just talking about there's 14 shots that are really about or from pacino's perspective so i mean he dominates this shot and then interestingly i looked back at the previous minute uh 12 shot like literally half the amount of shots in that minute yeah so clearly he's yeah he's rapid firing up the um the intercutting which is what i mean it's a very a Michael Mann thing to do, I think, is that um, that cutting between um, different standing shots, um, which he does so, you know, to extreme effect here, to, yeah, as you say, emphasise the fact that they've been played. And Vincent's sort of... What I love about this is, like, from that um, shot about 35, 40 seconds in to the end of the minute, you can just see Pacino's character. He's, like, um, I don't know, he's, like, you can tell he... You can see him come to that realisation. Like, you can see him realise that there's something and then 20 seconds later, aha, that's what it is. And so it's just, I, I think it's, you know, in that way that you, you're conscious of, you sort of know, you're sort of just grasping at it, and then you see him fully grasp at it, and then in the next minute he explains what it is. Yeah, I love how you go from frantic. It's so cool to go from frantic to dead certainty, and that's what yeah. really makes these guys so great. It's like, even in that scene we talked about just before when um, uh, Neil is triggered to the, the police being on them, in that scene and then walking away. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. He's, he looks over 
he sees something wrong. And it's maybe 10 seconds. I don't even think it's that. I think it's like 15 seconds from memory. Between seeing it, hearing the noise, looking at the trucks, knowing that that noise is completely out of place, and then making the decision to walk away. To walk away, yeah. And (laughs) what, what, what I love is, and this is just a super bit of like random trivia, the actor who plays what Joe Lynch, the director who joined me for that minute, called Captain Hydration. His name is Off- his name is Officer Bruce. He's okay. he's an actor named Stephen Ford. Stephen Ford is the son of former president of the United States Gerald Ford. <laughs> wow! Wow! Like, the, what is with the casting in this movie? I, that I mean, there's all sorts of examples that are like that. That's incredible. It's so so so. Weird. Did he have? Did he have any other? Acting appearances? Or yeah. Was he like an, yeah. Armageddon, Transformers, oh. When Harry Met Sally, Starship Troopers. He's in a few random, you know, he's <laughs> like, um, in, in Transformers, he's like four-star general and uh, he's in Armageddon. You know, all these little bit roles, but it's just so funny um, that, you know, he's the son of President Gerald Ford. Like, we could probably do an essay on the fact that the son of a president is the guy who ruins who the ruins police. The whole... <laughs> ruins, <laughs> ruins the police actually catching yeah, Neil McCauley. Um, but so, so you talked about, I, I love, I love... Maybe it's because I'm starting to get, you know, got a bit of a sport, a bit of a sports nut as well. I love a good stat. So when Anders is like, there's 24 shots and 10 of them contain Pacino, I'm just going to give you a separate stat because I love a stat. Yes. We talked yeah, about man. in 24 shots. Well, there's four editors in Heat and a 22 mm. strong editorial support staff Mm. there were two completely separate teams that were working over the 24-hour period to cut this together so this would have been one of those scenes where you talk again in 24 shots on 35 millimeter film it is not as easy to do with as it is today that we completely take for granted in the digital age (laughs) um but can you imagine how many times they're trying to get the pace right on this scene? You're trying to cut 24 shots. It's like, and it's not exactly timed. There's not a beat. There's not a rhythm to it. The music isn't exactly. helping. It's just exactly. frantic. It's all over the place. And you've got you know actors all doing different things. Uh, you know, Pacino particularly. I mean, it is a. Um, I mean, it's a feat of editing in and of itself. Absolutely. Um, so that's super interesting. And like, I just love how it all then culminates in that line of him going i mean is this guy something or (laughs) is he something like that i mean and that is the i mean that's the main theme of the film or one of the main themes anyway this relationship between both these men um and to have it sort of verbalized in that piece of dialogue there and we're what 81 minutes into the movie i mean that to me speaks to how i guess like i don't know epically formed the movie is you know i mean other films have gone and been and gone by this time yeah it's so funny i completely agree and what i think is so funny is i'm trying to rack my brain there are definitely great films that flip the cat and the mouse thing and it's often like a um it's often in the climactic moments of the film because you said like most films would end it's such a moment of climax move to have the and, and I'm just thinking, even in Michael Mann's oeuvre, in Manhunter, you know, mm-hmm. the, the the Francis Dollarhide character, the Red Dragon, the oh, sorry, the Tooth Fairy, he's the Red he, to himself, he's the Red <laughs> Dragon, but the Tooth Fairy, he 
like he he sort of lures Will Graham into his lair, if you like, and then ensnares him. He's this massive, powerful guy. So a lot of the time it happens in a climactic moment where the tables are turned on the lead guy because, you know, the bad guy knows who the good guy, that the good guy's after him and, the, you know, and they're sort of on a collision course. But it's so funny that the what makes Heat so memorable is that they, they flip this cat and mouse yeah. chase in power moves. They flip it on multiple occasions. And in this moment... It's just dealt with in a completely different way. Like like you said, he's not telling the guys about the revelation. He's not telling the guys, you know, my old maths teacher, you know, Mrs. Jones used to say, show your workings, right? It's like, show your workings. <laughs> I think there's a podcast called Show Your Work too that like, it talks about the same thing. It's like, show your workings. How did you get there? And Vincent, before showing his workings, he's framing it up going, oh my God, is this guy good or what? Like it's only minutes ago in the film that Captain Hydration, the son of President Gerald Ford, <laughs> like <laughs> ruined the entire sting operation. And Vincent's... And already things have, things have picked up like a huge notch. Yes. Um, this... only, and only in a few minutes is it not the famed diner scene. The it's diner like scene shortly. starts yeah. at so the 89th is... minute. We're not far away. Yeah, exactly. And that's where this whole, that, you know, that whole, that, you know, is this guy um, something or is he not? Like, that's when that plays out in a full, you know, amazing scene, I guess. So really interesting how when the time comes, suddenly it sort of, it really happens in this film, I guess, if you think about the fact that these three moments all happen within, you know, 10 to 15 minutes of each other, I guess. Yeah, it's really ramping up. It's really ramping yeah. up in these moments. And also, um, uh, yeah, it's just, it's it's one of these moments where, and I think it's sort of cool how the crews do their different thing here. They have their own little, I don't know. I want to call them like moments of crises. You know, I, I work with a person who calls them come to Jesus moments. You know, there's sometimes mm. it's like you watch Neil and his crew have this thing where they're like, Jesus Christ, where the fuck did this heat come from? And they mm-hmm. all have to sort of have a bit of a forum and they all have mm-hmm. different responses to that forum of going like, you know, this is a bad idea and this is a good idea and this is, you know, and, and we should probably go ahead with this. And in this moment, these guys are at their wits end of an investigation. Like Casals cannot make heads or tails of this. Bosco's like, hey, man, we're doing the freaking best we can. Michael T. Yep. Williamson's character, Drucker, is like looking around going, this is so freaking infuriating. Like he's feeling all the things <laughs> that Vincent is saying, but he's not saying any of it. And then you've got Paul Schwartz there just like trying to like, like he knows all the facts of the case, but the facts don't mean anything. Because, yeah, exactly. And, and so I love that their little crisis in a funny way, is actually way more disorganized than the crooks. Like, the crooks have a forum. They drive off to this, like, what looks like a Martian landscape, you know, transformer behind them and have a little forum about whether they should go ahead with it or whatever. And these guys are all just like, they're all way confused. And it takes Vincent to sort of go, I mean, is this guy something or is this guy? And the whole power of the scene and just him, him again, he regains his stature. All this, like, frantic looking around and... Mm. And as soon as the camera, then he goes, I think I've got an idea what he's looking at. Bang. This beautiful shot, 55 seconds. And it's like the purest, beautiful Pacino in his glasses, looking up the back to the the big tower where we know Neil is. If we've watched this scene before, Um, we've only got five seconds to go in the minute. And it's just like such a perfect, uh, the most cinematic frame of the scene. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I mean, uh, as he said, the, uh, I think the texture of the scene is particularly interesting in terms of like um, uh, 
like the emotional i don't know like it's funny it's a bit scary it's a bit like i mean if you if you're watching this for the first time like it's very it's a very tense scene um but yet also you've got i mean this is what really fascinates me about the film and pacino's performance in the whole movie is like there is a comedic element to what he's doing um and so that combination makes for really i don't know really potent like filmmaking it's not sort of po-faced it's not sort of a a serious moment where they're you know undercut and um you know blah 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 it's much more interesting than that it makes you feel i don't makes you feel weird watching it in a way which um i love about this movie oh it's so funny you say that because i i often say and i'm sorry if folks who are listening to the show have heard me say this a few times (laughs) since i said it because it's very likely but the, the first time I ever saw this film cinematically was at the American Essentials Film Festival a little earlier in the year. And I saw yep. it cinematically. and it's so different to watch at home, you know, with a multitude, you know, multitudinous distractions in our lives. And, mm. you know, in my life, two kids and, you know, even just your phone, like, you know, the... The, the 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 black mirror that is there to sort of distract yeah. you at any at any point, but when you watch this film in the cinema, it is a freaking tension inducing film. Like it is extremely high stakes. You feel very tense in all these moments, and the, and it's sort of you know you you find yourself you know it's your heart rate or whatever. It's so and Pacino's character is the diffuser of tension. He just comes in, and whether it's just pure sardonic sense of humor, like almost gallows humor as a cop mm. for someone who sees stuff, or whether it's a couple of times where he's like just taking in, you know, people he's interrogating completely off guard by going completely over the top. He just he just like lets the air out of the cells of the movie at the, all the right times, so you can go, "Oh my god, this is such a relief." And in this scene, yeah. it's in this scene, instead of going. Um, it, it, it sort of flows into the next minute, so I don't want to tread too much on the next minute's toes, but it's so good. Like, there's such a difference be- between going, we just got made, and then in a couple of seconds' time, going, okay, motherfucker. Like, it's like, <laughs> there's such a massive difference in the, like, oh, game on. Like, the yeah. game is still afoot. It's such a, like, Sherlock Holmes, like you know, trope, it's like, oh, the game's on. Like, now now we're really on. Like, if we thought yeah, the game yeah, was on before, really yeah. now we're really on. It's- yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and and such a quick uh, changeover, because, you know, yes. at the beginning of this scene, you you have no idea what's going on. It's, it's you know, it's tense. And then suddenly, I mean, it's weird, because suddenly, I mean, the revelation in the next minute is, you know, I mean... It, it undercuts their power, and yet there's also a confidence to going. Okay, I I get what's happening here. I I see what you're doing. Game on. So it's an interesting juxtaposition of those kinds of emotions. But that's, I mean, that's really interesting what you say about how your relationship with the movie changed uh, after seeing it in a cinema for the first time this year. Drastically. Dr- yeah. Just because of how they're, uh, yeah, you, you, you know what it's like. It's like the energy of an audience. I think it's also yeah. when you see, you know, you would have like, there's a movie, and w- w- I'll, I can ask you what yours is, but like, there's certain movies I watch almost like once a year with friends and like really yep. close friends. And yep. uh, there's a one, one of my mates and I will consistently watch two movies. Often we'll come around together around Christmas time. One of them is not a Christmas movie. One of them very much is. We'll have a few drinks or a lot of drinks and we'll watch two movies together. And when we watch them, 
we laugh and we cheer and we high five and we even do stupid, you know, um, uh, arm wrestle clasps because we watch yeah. Bad Santa and Predator, and <laughs> and Bad Santa, it's just we're laughing at everything. It's that movie is just so black and hilarious, and it's my like probably my favorite Christmas movie next to Scrooged with Bill Murray, um, all for the same sort of you know dark reason. Um, and yeah. we watch and and Predator like is again. You know, we're watching one of the machoest movies of all time right now in this podcast, but it's like ultimate masculine, you know, such a, a great sci-fi thriller, um, one of the best action movies ever made. And if you're watching it with the right people, you know all the beats and you're mm. watching it in the room and the energy of the room and people are excited. And I think mm. when he, when I saw it in a cinema, it was like with, you know, it was a small cinema, but let's just say 60 to 80 people who are all fans of Heat all going on this wonderful ride again together that we've been on many times before, but it's different. It's a little bit more reverential, you know, when you're in a dark cinema mm. and it's loud as hell and it's gorgeously 4K and you're all being drawn into the tension, the violence, the intensity of these characters. And then Pacino is just like, oh, that's wonderful. And then hangs up on someone like it's funny. Like it's funny he's such a psychopathic you know um professional that he just doesn't care about interpersonal skills and the people who work best with him just kind of accept that it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's like, exactly no one fights back against what he what he's, none no. of his co- yeah his colleagues are all like yeah, yeah that's just me to it. Like, and look if anyone's worked in a corporation if anyone's worked <laughs> in a corporation in your life or a business you know you know there are people who are just nuts like they're nuts yeah. And yeah, if yeah. they get results, then they often stay in a job. And at certain points in your career, you interact with them and you intersect with them and you might work with them for a, a time. And they end up just being a hilarious story that you tell your friends. Like, oh, this nutbag I work with used to do this because they just mm. they function on a different plane of intensity. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's super relatable. But, yeah, it's that's where I, what I mean about that whole energy. Like when you're in a dark, mm. dark room, it's really loud. And it's the crispest, beautiful print, that 4K print, the definitive edition. It's so lovely. And the colors, you know, they didn't really need to do much color correction, but they really just did a little, I don't know, just like um, moderate enhancements, I want to say. like, But it's so crystal. It's so beautiful. The city looks amazing. These shots look amazing. But, um, but yeah, and this scene, it's triumphant. It's like, ooh, yeah. it's just, yeah, yeah. this is so cool. The, the, That's, and, yeah. That's cool. I mean, I agree completely that the, I mean, the thing about watching movies in cinemas, I think, is that, I mean, I'm just thinking, I had this amazing experience last Christmas or Christmas before and seeing for the very first time, It's a Wonderful Life at the Astor Theatre here in Melbourne, which they screen it every Christmas Eve. So it's like this tradition and like going in there and knowing that most of the people in there had been watching this movie like year in year out like Great. with their fam everyone was with their families and it was all very it was just like this amazing experience and me having never i didn't have that tradition at all because it was the first time i'd seen the film and yet i could really feel that in the room that would have to be ranked as a similar um similarly noticeable i guess um example of this kind of thing but i mean the thing i always say about um, watching movies in the cinema is like it does take a lot to walk out of a movie, whereas it's very easy to get distracted oh, at home. Man. Like it's so easy to just, oh, I'll check Twitter, oh, I'll just pause that, make dinner, I'll do this, I'll do that. <laughs> whereas it really, you need to. <laughs> and have... you're so right. The first one is, I'll check Twitter. <laughs> it's like, yeah, what, oh, what oh, fucking oh, rabbit oh, hole oh, am I going to go down tonight? Um... Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, whereas it does 
it takes you know you put up with a lot more particularly if you're with other people um mm. in a cinema which i think can lead to, i mean i don't know it depends on on, on people's thoughts and feelings i guess but i think that can then lead to like some of them i mean some of the most amazing experiences i've had in cinemas have been because i was bored essentially for half an hour and then something amazing happened which yes. i would not have experienced as a sort of rupture of energy um if i had you know put the kettle on or whatever yeah so and, and yeah it's always a good test i i like you know i'm i'm definitely the cinephile in my household with my wife and um and so i might be putting something on for the first time you know to watch it for the first time and i, I my great test is you know, my wife will sort of be sitting there passively with our little one who's like not only not, you know, our littlest one is like nine weeks old or whatever, sitting there snuggling on the couch yeah. and we're all sort of sitting together. And if I see her stop looking at her phone, like, because <laughs> usually I'm watching something she doesn't particularly want to watch. Yeah. Um, then I know That's I've got, you know. then I know I've got like, then I know that the movie or the television show that we're watching, I've kind of got her because she's like, oh, this is like interesting enough for me to like, Stop. But you're so yeah. right. So the energy in a cinema is totally different. Again, a great tangent to go down. Like I, I remember seeing Call Me By Your Name at Sydney Film Festival. I think it was not the Oh my god. Not yes. the most recent one, but the year before. And there was, you know, I was sitting in a in an audience of, you know, a, a very eclectic and wonderful audience with a lot of queer folk. And I remember there was a guy sitting in front of me and there's a really, you know, sort of um emotional moment towards the end of the film where the fates of um Tim Chalamet's character um, and um, Army Hammer's character, they sort of make a decision, um, spoilers, they make a decision that's got to do with their relationship um, and whether or not they should pursue it or not. And when that decision is made, I saw a guy, like he was sitting up completely straight and then he swung his head back when the reaction happened and just sighed and <laughs> and... And like I was like living that guy's emotions at that time. Like everyone in the cinema was obviously really dialed into it, but that one guy, he just made that moment for me. He was like the punctuation mark, boom! Yeah, like, in that moment, it's like if, you know, uh, he was he was he was like I I thought I was in the moment, but he was living mm. that moment or had lived it, and so it was so mm. cool. Um, I think that you know that sometimes that that cinematic experience for your favorite ones, you don't always see them the first time that way, and I guarantee you no. that most of us don't get to see our favorite films on the big screen but if you do then that sometimes it has that little bit of extra that little bit of indelible magic that you Ab can't explain absolutely and it's i know this is a, a tangent from heat but it's funny that you mentioned call me by your name because i saw that film eight times in cinema i just i really had this like insane emotional response to that film and the first time i saw it was at the melbourne international film festival uh last year um and it was a similarly intense you know and i think the you know the national uh, marriage equality postal survey definitely played into that as well um and so there was quite a specific context to the screening that i think really i and to the fact it was the end of winter so it, it's a been a long winter very cold gray like yes. uh you know summer feels like it was a long time ago i think that combination of things just really uh, and, you know, the very uh, queer audience as well really made that an am amazing experience. One of the uh, one of the highlights of my cinema-going uh, life, for sure. Yes. Um, and, yeah, I wouldn't have got that if I watched that film for the first time. 
on, Blu-ray, on your phone. Although I have seen it many times <laughs> since on Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah, it's it's okay to do, it's okay to do those, but sometimes you've got to set those reverential screenings up to check it out. But yeah. we're here. We're here in this moment. Yes. We're here. Okay, back to heat. Back yes. to heat. And 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 arguably. Um, just as tense a love story as Call Me By Your Name, you know, in the sun dren- <laughs> as opposed to the sun drenched Italian um, countryside, we're in the sun drenched LA, and and uh, well, and and we've got these, you know, two chaste lovers at the centre, <laughs> Anders. Perhaps is a, definitely a reading of the film that's there for for the taking. Oh, definitely, definitely. <laughs> and I mean, the way they in that diner scene, the way they both um, like this like weird smiling with their eyes there's the the way they smile at each other and you know the, so many other moments too um but i mean on a completely different planet in terms of location and i i don't know what do what do you make of the setting of this particular minute this docks setting I like it because yeah. uh, the reason I like it, and, and this is what I've sort of observed in the preceding minute, is because yep. it's the most obviously incongruous setting in the film. So mm. there are settings like this in the film um, mm. that are very bespoke. I know that's a weird description, but they're very bespoke <laughs> for the purpose of what the yeah. scene is. So just as we talked about in that little forum where there's a problem and they know that they're in trouble or whatever and they needed to make a decision about whether they're going to keep going along with this thing or not, that's intentionally at the what feels like the ends of the earth. Similarly with mm. the drive-in scene. And even though, and and even their high scene, the um, their sort of crazy high scene uh, that they get caught, where the Captain Hydration, President Gerald Ford's son, you know, makes that noise. <laughs> yeah, it's in the city. It's just dark. It's quiet. People have gone home for the day. You know, it's in downtown, and no well, one's there. Well, and uh, I mean that, and that is an. Am- I actually noticed when I was watching rewatching the film that amazing pan down from the city lights down onto oh. that truck driving. Like, yeah, from the macro right through to the micro. Yeah, and it's so such a stunning execution of that shot. But I just remember when I when I go back to this scene now again and again, that some of the things that leap out to me is is part of why Vincent gets and is able to calculate so quickly that something is wrong, because there's nothing here. Mm. There's nothing mm. of interest. And even mm. there's and everything about De Niro's performance, because everyone talks about, you know, Pacino is the more histrionic performance in this. De Niro makes more gestures with his body faking this heist thing to make mm. it super obvious to the cops that he's looking to do this heist than any other part of the film. He doesn't do yeah. Like, it's very, it's overacted. And so I think what I love about, what I love about this is like the contrast. It's so nothing that it should be obvious that it's a fake, that it's a trap, <laughs> and it's not. Like, it's not... And in these moments, it's not obvious to Casals, and it's not obvious to, um, to Bosco when they're there, or to Schwartz, who are, like, all hanging out there and, and observing. And Neil's being really hyperactive and sort of swinging his arms about. It's still not obvious yeah. that it's it's fake. And I love that nothing that they've done so far is not extremely calculating. And and this this is so out of place, and it's... It's it's gift wrapped, gift wrapped, gift wrapped, but it's not. It it just makes no sense. Like it's the present you open, and this is the coal. Like literally, it's at a refinery. This should mm. be a gift. It should be a gift, 
and mm. it's just junkyard. Like it couldn't be more obvious that it's 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 wrong, <laughs> and that's what's so cool. I think that plays into Vincent's reaction in the scene in the minute that we're talking about is because the calculation goes so quickly. What makes the scene frantic in those twenty four shots that you point out, and is is that. It, Vincent's scanning and appraising of the scene to try and figure out what they're looking at, which is what he does in the opening scene in the heist, where he's fig- you know he's looking at the aftermath. Um, yeah, is being interrupted by the fact that everyone doesn't know what the hell's going on, and so I just yeah. love in his moments there that he just goes, "Oh, I know what's wrong." This whole yeah. thing is wrong. <laughs> like it's like everything about this is wrong. Like this, n- none of it makes any sense whatsoever. So, yeah. exactly, and and none of the. I mean, and it sort of, I guess, speaks into that broader uh, idea of you know Michael Mann as a filmmaker of um, you know Los Angeles as a city. I mean, it's such a strange environment as depicted in his films, and you know as. Uh, as manifested in real life. So, I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of like all of these sort of bizarre moments, you know, like the overact. I mean, I agree. I actually laughed out loud the first time I saw him doing that pointing. So I was like, wow, this is yeah, this is like full gesticulation <laughs> in this movie at all. But it's all, I mean, and, and straight down to Pacino's character, I think, like it's just the behavior is sort of just sort of, accepted within the film world because like it's like i mean anything goes we're at the end of the world here we're at like you know a future this is sort of like the natural end point of um you know modernism or like certain notions of what cities are which i just find the whole la thing i find really interesting and particularly um uh particularly in this scene because like the docks are i mean if you've got a city that's sort of I mean, I, I think it's a bit too simplistic to say that it caters towards like, um, uh, like networks or like interper like it's it's set up around you know the freeways and the these sort of like systems and processes that are sort of anti-human, um, if you can call them that in a way. Like these big, big scale processes. I think it's. I mean, it's this weird mishmash of like the individual human and also this these like crazy major environments that like we build around ourselves um i think it's i mean the docks is such an interesting location in that context because this is where all of that you know the blood that sort of pumps through the uh the arteries i guess of the city this is where it all starts from and it looks like a wasteland and it looks like a wasteland what's so funny is that docks in movies you know you can go all the way from um uh what am I thinking? You can go all the way from, oh, I'm just thinking of something like The Wire um, to like, you, or, or yeah. if you're having a look at, um, oh my God, what is that? Eli Kazan and Brando movie that I've just completely blanked yeah, on, on the title. On the waterfront. On the waterfront. You only have yeah. to look at On the Waterfront of The Wire, like those classical doc films and even like Philadelphia and Rocky, like the doc towns, like they're breeding, they're breeding grounds of people and working class folk and they're around yeah. and there's activity and there's things happening. And so what I love about this version of the docks is that there's like a deadness. There's just nothing. nothing. It's junkyard. It's junkyards. There's no life there anymore. It's all, it's, it's that, you know, digital avatar of what a dock used to be. It's just abandoned. There's just shipping containers. And so that's what's, it's, it's like, and everything about it is, you know, the life in the scene then becomes in 
you know, those ghosts that are haunting it, right? Like Neil's a ghost in this scene and he just, he's yeah. there and he's revealed and it's like, I see you. Um, and it's, that's this great, you know, little juxtaposition that we play in the scene. But uh, that uh, it's, this is a, you know, again, just to, to go back to what I was saying is when I watch this scene over and again, every time now I just look at it and I'm like, it's so wrong that it's almost blatant that the cops didn't pick up how wrong this scene is. <laughs> and that's why I love rewatching it because I'm like, they should know that it's wrong, but they're like, oh, we're so close to these guys. They don't know. You know, they don't know yeah, we're on yeah, them. Yeah. They've completely tried to overcome the fact that in the middle of a sting, one of their douchebags made a noise that basically <laughs> ruined their entire undercover operation. Um, but so just... they're a bit too eagerly. They uh, jumped at the next, the yeah, next they're, lead. They're jumping at the next lead Over, and, and hoping. Oh, you're right, right? That's exactly yeah. what it is. It's a it's a blatant <laughs> overcompensation because it's like we it, it, as long as we jump onto this next thing, we can recover. And it's just all yeah, false. Exactly. It's all false. And so that's what's even even greater about this. It's like they're they're clutching at straws and literally is like oil refinery, ghost land, ghost town of a of, of a dock and literally a dump and they can't distinguish that this is wrong <laughs> until Vincent but, gets there. And that raises an interesting question. Um uh, like I mean, is it not an entirely pointless endeavour. I mean, is getting rid of these crims off the street, is that really going to do anything in the greater scheme of Los Angeles? I think they have to believe it. I think yeah. that, that to even go to work every day, they've got to believe that these guys are bad. <laughs> like, they've got to believe that they're bad. And what's so funny, though, is, and this is what I ne- hadn't thought about until, like, uh, this, it's actually the 70th minute that I talked to a friend of mine, Steve, who came on the show. Um, he had to not say his surname. It was redacted from the show because he's a active investigator of yes. organized crime in uh, Australia. I listened to that. Yeah. And uh, Steve said, I would have taken these guys at that. If that was my team, I would have taken them at the diamond exchange. There would be no yeah, way that these guys right. who had killed security personnel who were essentially cops would be still walking the streets. Mm. I'd just get them off for two years and get rid of them. But I think that what's with these guys, they just see the potential for, the fact that these guys can just function all the time and they've caught the scent of these big players and they're trying to take them down. And, um, yeah, I, I just, I love the, the delusion, right? The delusion is that we didn't mess up at that sting, but they messed up. And now it's like, they actually really know who they're dealing with, which is what's even better. They really know the caliber of who they're dealing with. I think in this moment. And then again, they kind of get it tripped up in the upcoming conversation scene as well, which is really tremendous. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, yeah, interesting. Well, Anders, from uh, comparisons to "Call Me by Your Name," <laughs> apt digressions. I think uh, um, my my of course for, my natural. Form, <laughs> natural talking about he my former um, my former uh, uh, university lecturer and tutor and a mentor of mine and friend Hamish Ford was on the show and he's like this show he's like this show you know covers obviously heat and he goes but this movie is ripe for a queer reading and I hope that if you do have some spare time and you do want to follow Anders as uh, he does have a tiny letter. <laughs> Um, that he does send out. And I'm looking forward to seeing if one day there is a queer reading of Heat um, and a comparison I, yeah. and a comparison to Call Me By Your Name. <laughs> if he's if he's feeling like he hasn't got an, a busy enough schedule, he can probably do that. 
Anders, mate, thank you so much um, for being a part of the show. I really appreciate you making the time. Um, at Anders Furs is where you can find him, and um, you can click on his link. Um, it will be um, uh, his little tiny letter. It's called Furs on Film, um, and he's uh, sends through if you if you like me and you've already subscribed, you get an awesome little film essay that comes into your inbox for your reading pleasure, and uh, and uh, it's it's That's very it. worth once a fortnight, very worthwhile, or Cultural Capital Podcast with Andy Hazel and Eloise Ross, um, and the full Cultural Capital Podcast experiences on One Heat Minute as well, which I'm super excited about. Mate, thank you so much for being a part of the show. No worries. Thank you very much for having me, Blake. And guys, as always, thank you for listening. Thank you to the awesome Garth Franklin for our web design. Thank you to Mr. Paul Davies for his great theme tune, an unforgettable one. Um, and look, again, a huge thank you to all of you guys listening. Um, please subscribe to One Heat Minute. Rate and review it if you can. It's a huge help, especially on iTunes. Anders will tell you um, with Cultural Capital Podcasts, it's just a huge help for not yes. only the folks who are downloading like it, but if you can throw a review up there, for some reason, iTunes doesn't function just on listens or downloads or recommendations. It's The reviews matter, so um, mm-hmm. if you can take a couple of minutes and review. And if you'd like Anders and uh, and Andy's and Elo, um, uh, uh, Eloise or Elo to her friends, I should say. Um, but Elo, uh, they're great podcasts. Um, review that too; it's really worthwhile. Um, and and they'll they'll very much appreciate it. But thank you guys for following along this mad project, One Heat Minute. Um, we're at the eighty-first minute, um, the eighty-second minute coming up, and the eighty-fifth minute marks the halfway point oh. of this project. So. Thank you guys um, for following along. Um, it's all downhill from here, I think. Um, but uh, when that 85th minute comes, you'll hear um, way more. And uh, and just to give you a bit of a clue, the 89th minute contains a great line, which almost is it's it's a it's an aside line. But whenever anyone thinks about heat, it's a line that you can say most regularly in your daily life. What do you say? I buy you a cup of coffee. So. We are not far away from the sort of centerpiece of this movie, almost at the center minute, 89th to 95th, the Coffeehouse Conversation. So all that's all coming up. Thank you guys again for listening, and we'll catch you another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.